Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our hosts Dr. Lynn Kohick and Dr. Ingrid Farrow are joined by Dr. Carmen Imes. Carmen is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University. She is the author of Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, and she is currently working on a commentary on Exodus for Baker Academic. Carmen is passionate about bridging the gap between the church and the academy, helping people discover accessible resources for biblical study. We are thrilled to welcome Carmen to the podcast today. Carmen, we're so glad to have you here, and we look forward to hearing. If you could start us out, tell us a little bit about yourself, as well as what led you into the academy and into studies in Exodus and the Torah and where you're going from there. All right. Thank you. Well, it's great to be on the podcast with you. Thanks for this invitation. Um, I can remember as a child loving the Bible and just being really fascinated by it and wanting to read it and understand it. And um, I also loved to teach, although I didn't recognize that until much later. Um, my mom saw it from a young age. She, she tells a story about um, coming to pick me up from the church nursery. And when she gets to, she rounds the corner and sees the door is closed, but there's a little window in the door. And she looks through the window and all the teachers are sitting at the back of the room, back of the room with their hands folded in their laps. And she wondered, well, where are all the children? And then she looks around the corner and there I am with all the kids lined up in front of me. And I have a Bible open on my lap upside down. And I'm, because I don't know how to read yet, I'm like three years old and I'm teaching them, Jesus loves you. <laughs> so I think from a young age, there was a spark in me, uh, a desire to teach. And I also remember as a young age, loving to write. And I would try to write books. I could never figure out how to end them, but I had lots of beginnings. <laughs> and stories about uh, princesses and mermaids and whatever else. So um, so yeah, I, I think it was probably in Bible college that those, those desires all converged and I realized that God had wired me to teach Bible and, and that you'd have to have a PhD if you were gonna do that at the college level. And so that began, began a long sojourn of um, just gradually chipping away at a degree while I was raising our kids and then um, finishing my PhD and starting off in teaching. I've taught at George Fox University, Multnomah University, uh, and now at Prairie College. And I have loved this journey. One of the one of the probably best surprises of it, I always knew I would love the classroom, but one of the biggest surprises lately has been how much I love writing and how it's just sort of broken open the world for me and given me connections with people all across the globe. Just this morning, I got a letter from uh, an inmate in Texas who somehow got a hold of my book, Bearing God's Name, and said it was totally transformative to him. He's now shared it with all of his, the other residents of the prison, and, and they're just really appreciating it. So who knew? That's exciting. That's really exciting, Carmen. Uh, Carmen and I, we were together for a while uh, at Wheaton College where you mm -hmm. did your PhD and you loved the cold weather so much that you went up to Canada. Uh, maybe that was an influence of one of your teachers uh, at the PhD who's Canadian himself. True. Uh, thought, I, yeah, I just need to have more of the cold weather. Well, we won't dwell on, on that because you know that I... Uh, I, I don't necessarily love the the cold, but anyway, 
<laughs> I would love to uh, just hear a little bit more about um, your uh, research into the Psalms, specifically mm -hmm. looking at how those in the early church understood the Psalms. I know that you found several women's writings. You were talking about yourself loving to write. Tell us yeah. a little bit about how these early women, who they were and what they found compelling about the Psalms that they commented on. Yeah, this project on the Psalms was completely outside my wheelhouse. Um, it, it was conceived of by a a colleague of mine from my student days at Wheaton College, Hank Voss, and he's spearheading this amazing project funded by the Lilly Foundation that is designed to bring uh, early Christian classics into the hands of, of under-resourced pastors. And so he asked me to consider writing volume one for this, for this series. It's called the Sacred Roots Spiritual Classics series. And um, he wanted me to find little blurbs written by ancient Christian writers or early Christian writers on each psalm. And that is not an area that I work in. I, I work in the psalms and I love the psalms, but to read what the early church had to say about the psalms was outside of my area of expertise. So I went in as a learner and we really wanted to include some women's voices, um, but that's much harder to find. So I started with, uh, with this Handbook of Women Biblical Interpreters by Marion uh, and Taylor to help me figure out, we, we looked at what the index said, you know, any, any mention of the Psalms in the whole book, we tracked down, okay, who said anything about the Psalms? And then we found those resources. So a few of the interpreters we found include Gertrude the Great and um, Katharina Schutzel from the Reformation period. Um, we have Mary Sidney Herbert who rendered the Psalms in in beautiful English verse, it's rhyming and it's got great rhythm. And she's really a brilliant poet. Um, I think there's another one and her name's not coming to mind, but but it was really fun to see. One of, one of the fun parts about this project was to see the wide range of personalities. So Aquinas, for example, everything Aquinas has to say is in like outlines. It's like he thinks in outlines. Well, there are two things here to consider. And the first thing is this, and it has three subparts. And, and the second thing is this, and it has four subparts. And he just talks through his outline. And then you get Gertrude the Great, who's on the opposite extreme of the spectrum. And she just loves Jesus. And the Psalms have become so much a part of her prayer life that she can scarcely pray without praying the Psalms. And so her writings um, are like this lavish love affair that's just expressed in psalmic language. So such such a wide spectrum of personality. Find, yeah, did you find that women, uh, the women authors uh, were primarily the way Gertrude the Great handled things or were they, uh, it, that just- Not necessarily. Um, I, I would say there are there are times when Augustine himself is quite, emotional and gushing about what he's reading. Um, and then I would say Katharina Schutzel is, is um, she paraphrases the Psalms. She is, we have two, two of her Psalms. Uh, we have letters in which she paraphrased two different Psalms as a sort of pastoral letter to one of, one of their parishioners. Her husband was a pastor. He died. And so she took up his ministry and she, she like gives 
pastoral counsel to this ailing man. He's housebound. And so she, when she retells the Psalms, she's paraphrasing, but it's not, I wouldn't say it sounds like Gertrude. Um, so, so a whole range of personalities, which was a lot of fun. Yes. And was, um, when you, when you think about women and, uh, connecting with the Psalms, what were some of the themes that you, you found from them? You know, I, th I think what, what stood out to me as I was reading, rereading the page proofs this past week, I read the whole thing in just a couple days one thing I really noticed is that Augustine is calling people to make Jesus, to, to make God their very first love. He says, if we pray to God for anything other than God, then we're getting less than, the, less than his best. What we really should want is God himself. And if we love anything, like if anything is eclipsing our love for God, then our worship is incomplete. And so I, I feel like that vision came through over and over again, his vision of making Christ above all things. But then Gertrude, when I read her writings, it feels like she's actually got this. She's really embraced it. She doesn't love anything more than God. She's just longing to be with him. And she talks about um, his mellifluous face, uh, she's, wow, she's, what a word. Yeah, yeah, what a word. She's just constantly like wanting, like, how long do I have to wait before I can be with you? And I guess she grew up in a um, convent. Her parents died at a young age. And so she, she grew up um, raised by nuns. And she, she at, I think it was like, I'm working from memory here, but I think when she was about 24 years old, she had a vision that Jesus asked her to marry him. And so the, the sort of intimate language that you find in her writings is because she sees the Lord as her spouse. Anyways, it was quite different than anything I had ever read before. Well, that's exciting. That's very exciting. Yeah, one of the things that I've noticed about your writing from what I've seen, especially uh, Bearing God's Name, is the way you integrate your life with the text, mm -hmm. because all the way through it, and that's what makes it so accessible, because mm -hmm. you're, you're personalizing and you're applying this biblical text, which so, most people have such a hard time with, mm -hmm. and, and you just integrate story and, and Narnia and all kinds of things, incidents from your family, and, and you so smoothly transfer from one to the other mm -hmm. that it just carries it along and helps people do exactly what you do from your very introduction, bring mm -hmm. us into the text. So is that something that you mentioned when you were young and, and this, this has just been, has this just been part of your life and have you seen this continue to develop? And, and why? If, yeah. And as you answer that, if you could also summarize for our listeners, bearing God's name, what the argument, what the argument is in sure. that. Sure. Yeah. So the book flowed out of my doctoral research at Wheaton College. I wrote my dissertation on the command not to take the Lord's name in vain, and I became convinced that the command is not telling us not to say God's name or not to swear oaths in His name, but that it's actually. Um, God is saying to the people of Israel at Sinai that they are people who belong to him. They've been drawn into covenant. He's put his name on them. Therefore, everywhere they go, they are his representatives. So he's asking them not to rep not to misrepresent him among the nations. And that idea so captured me during my doctoral work. And I kept thinking, I have got to get this message out to a broader audience because I'm going to write this dissertation. And even if it gets published, only a handful of people will read it. But this is something every Christian needs to get a hold of. 
And so I think what helped me, uh, Dr. Farrow, to answer your question is what helped me to, to weave my own story together with the biblical text is just the, the years that I've spent teaching it. So here at Prairie, I'm the entire Old Testament department. I have every student and I teach Torah twice a year. Plus I've done an elective on Exodus, um, spoken in chapel on Exodus, that sort of thing. I've done a bunch of Sunday school classes um, on the Ten Commandments as well. So I've had opportunity to teach this reading of the Ten Commandments to a lot of different audiences. And each time I teach it, I think there there comes this moment. These are not like pre-planned moments, but I'm realizing how much improvisation is an important ingredient in teaching. Because as I'm explaining the text and I'm trying to get help people understand it, inevitably this illustration will just pop into my head. So I try it. And some illustrations don't really work, but others work. And so by the time I wrote this book, I had years worth of examples to give and and then as I was writing, developed some more that have made their way back into the classroom. Um, and so it's been fun. There's there's a particular illustration that I use that I have become really fond of. It's on page 38 in the book, which I, I have memorized because this is where I tell the story, this fictional imaginary story about our neighbors, but I use our neighbors' real names. And I say that sometimes we think of God's instructions at Sinai as like a, a cranky neighbor who's who's dishing out rules to the neighbor kids it would be as if like the neighbor the neighbors are playing outside playing basketball my husband comes out and says what do you guys think you're doing why are you playing basketball you haven't cleaned my house yet you haven't taken out my trash there are still weeds in my yard it's like well no no person does that to the neighbor kids right that's not appropriate because the neighbors are not part of your household they're not part of your family um, and, and so as I told that story, I used real the real names, Colton and Theron, who are really our neighbors. Now, Colton uh, was thrilled to see his name in print. And so he has page 38 memorized and tells everybody he knows about it. And ironically, he has begun helping my husband with chores. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think maybe because of the book, he's 18 years old and he is a really special young man. Um, and he's he comes over every day to help with chores. So, so well, anyway, you know that, we're gonna have to file that away. All of our <laughs> listeners, if you need some house help, that there you just got a tip from Carmen. Thank you, on Colton. And and what the point I'm trying to make in the book is that God is not dishing out chores to the neighbor kids. He is setting up house rules for his own children so that the household can run smoothly. You don't have children so that they will do chores. You you give your children chores so that the household will run smoothly. So I have never met a young couple who's, you know, with stars in their eyes say, we want to get married and we want to have children because they're going to help us with chores. <laughs> like that's that's just not why people want to have kids. And and in this in a similar way, the law is not why God calls Israel to belong to him. The law is the means by which they carry out the mission of representing him among the nations. So it's a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. Carmen, one of the things that I appreciate, of course, your book, Bearing God's Name and, and the, the rich imagery and, and understanding that you bring, but also I wanted to hear you explain how that dovetails with an understanding of this next book that you're working on being God's image. Yeah, it's something that um, sort of arose organically from the first book. I talk about it briefly in Bearing God's Name um, because a lot of people have asked me when they've heard me teach about 
um, what it means to bear God's name, they've said, oh, isn't that kind of like that we're the image of God and we represent God's rule over creation? And I say, yes, it's similar, but it's different. So the, it's similar because both are representational roles. God chooses humanity to represent his, his dominion, and he chooses Israel to represent him among the nations. But they're different because every human being is the image of God, and only the covenant members who enter into that agreement with God at Sinai are those who bear God's name. So I think the command not to bear God's name in vain is not a command that's we we it's it doesn't work to see that as a universal moral prohibition because only a certain segment of the population is drawn into covenant with Yahweh. Excellent. And and as we think about the uh, bearing God's image that all humanity does, what does what does that mean for your da daily life? For my daily life, how do I live into that? Mm. There's a couple of ways that I think um, it should transform the way we think about ourselves and our not, not only our identity, but our vocation in the world. One way is that we have an intrinsic connection with the with creation. So the story of God making Adam from the from the dirt and then making Eve from Adam is a story that shows that we are essentially connected to this planet and that that from the very beginning, God is giving men and women a job to do in relation to creation. So often in evangelical circles, at least over the past few decades, there's been this thought that at the end of time, this whole world is just going to burn up in smoke. And so I shouldn't, I don't need to care about it. And I think if we take Genesis 1 and 2 seriously, we can see that it's an, it's an essential part of our identity and vocation to care for this planet, to be stewards of God's creation. So that's part of it. The other thing that I think is just mind-blowing is to notice gender in this story, to see that in Genesis 1, God is creating male and female in his image. It's not as though, um, you know, sometimes because Adam is created before Eve in chapter 2, there's this default idea that, well, Adam is truly human and Eve is like the knockoff or the, you know, the, the tag along or the afterthought or something. But I don't think that works. If we're taking Genesis 1 seriously, we see God makes both men and women in his image. And he doesn't say, okay, man, your job is to rule over and subdue the earth. Woman, you can just come along and, and clean up after him. Um, it, it seems to me that when we take seriously this human vocation, what emerges is a picture of partnership between men and women who are called and equipped to carry out God's creative and orderly work in the world. Yeah. And how does that, um, do you find that your students, how, do, how does how does that play in in your teaching? Are students excited about that? Yeah, you know, um, because of the way my class is set up, we don't get to spend a lot of time on image of God. Like we have sort of half a class period or something. Um, but I have seen the lights go on when we talk about this. And I, I've seen the, the women in the room sit up a little taller and realize, um, oh, I, I'm endowed with dignity as, as a human being, the crown of creation. And in fact, some have even suggested that, you know, if you look at the order of creation in Genesis 1, things get 
go from simple to complex and they keep getting better and better and better with human beings as the crown of creation. So if you carry that forward into chapter two, then you have woman made after man. <laughs> so is God finally got it right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, know. And, I know. And I don't, yeah. I, I don't actually think that works no. to carry that forward, but I think it's no. amusing to, to, yeah. to think yes. about. That's yeah. an example of eisegesis, right? <laughs> yes, misreading, yes. misreading scripture, but it is also a lot of fun. And I wanted <laughs> to um, uh, think about the um, just the notion of humans in relation to creation. Mm. Um, have, have there been some things that have surprised you as you've done more research on image and creation? Hmm. A few things. Um, Matthew Lynch has come out with a book recently on violence in the Hebrew Bible. And he notes that when humans rebel against God, it actually does violence to creation. And so that God can say to Cain, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, that there's this ecological ramification of human rebellion. That's, that's become more obvious to me than what I've seen in the past. Um, I, I've also read Sandy Richter's book, Stewards of Eden, and um, our, as a family, we're watching her Seminary Now videos on the book, and they've just been amazing. Our 12-year-old absolutely loves them, and last night, we were watching the episode on wild animals and just the, that, the habitats of animals in the Southern Levant, the, um, the ways that the laws of Deuteronomy call the Israelites to protect the species that they are coexisting with. Those are things that I haven't noticed before in the Torah. So it's been fun to see. Oh, that's, that's great. And thank you for that little shout out mm -hmm. of Seminary Now, which is part of Northern Seminary. Which yes, is it is. Podcast. So thank you. Thank you for that free advertising. We love, we love Seminary Now at our house. This is what we do for family devotions. Um, we've been through David Fitch's series on faithful presence. We've watched John Walton's uh, Lost World of Genesis 1. Now we're on to Sandy Richter. We haven't done my series yet as a family. <laughs> I think we're all tired of hearing me talk. Well, I was going to say, mom, was, you know, tends to be on the bottom of the list typically. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. Yeah. So, but you, you've stayed a lot in, the, in um, Deuteronomy, and, but you're moving into Exodus now. Actually, right. Deuteronomy has not been my my area of research. It's been Exodus. So okay. Exodus and Psalms have been kind of the two places where I've done the most work. Um, and then Deuteronomy sort of tags along because it's also, you know, in that in the Torah. It, there you go. It's it it uh, can't be avoided. Right. Got to look at it. So as you're going through this uh, commentary in Exodus and I should mm. just say, you know, here I am with you and Ingrid, Old Testament people who I really admire as being way more courageous than a New Testament person because <laughs> I only had to learn the pretty easy language of Greek and it's so much shorter, the New Testament, than the old. So right away, let me just say, I'm junior varsity, <laughs> you guys are varsity. Um, so as, I talk, as you think about Exodus and you're going through Exodus, what are some things that especially uh, women today um, might want to know about mm. this great book of Exodus? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, but before I answer it, I have to ask, how many pages were you allowed to write on Ephesians in your recent commentary? Oh, I, you know, that's a, that's a secret. They don't, they don't allow me to uh, reveal that. Because <laughs> this is where it's totally unfair, right? You've it got totally six unfair. chapters to yeah. cover in your volume, yeah. and I've got 40 chapters to cover in mine. 
Well, and that's why I, don't, I haven't even written on a gospel because they're so much longer. They you know? are. And I did Philippians, four chapters. I thought, okay, let's try Ephesians. Maybe I could do six. Yeah, <laughs> basically lazy when it comes, you know, when it comes down to it. Anyway, uh, about but my, I, my slacker writing. <laughs> <laughs> I have just been blown away by how fun it is to write a commentary. And I, you know, some days I wish I could just do this all day, every day. Um, but I, so far, I'm only up through the first three chapters of Exodus. So I've been hanging out in the story of Moses' childhood and, and growing up. And if one thing that's really interesting about these chapters is that if you're reading them in Hebrew, you suddenly come across this really heavy concentration of uh, third-person feminine plural verbs, which if you're, if you're taking a Hebrew class, um, you know, most of the default example words that you practice with are, are masculine singular or masculine plural, but you have all these feminine plurals in the early chapters of Exodus because there's women doing the action. So it's really kind of jarring. Here's what has hit me upside the head, which I just think is so amazing. In the early chapters, the, especially the first two chapters of Exodus, you have a succession of women who are leaning in to what they know is the right thing to do at great risk to themselves. And you have a Pharaoh who's really worried about the proliferation of men, male Israelites, because they're going to join potentially the enemies of Egypt and fight against the nation. And so he's trying to have all the boys killed, but really he should be worried about the women because it's women who undermine him at every turn. And what I found especially striking about this is that, so you have the, the midwives, you have the mother of Moses, his sister, uh, you have the servant of Pharaoh's daughter, and then you have Pharaoh's daughter, all who are participating in this conspiracy to, um, to resist Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's policies, which are anti-life policies. But the, the verbs that are used to describe what they do are the same verbs that are used to describe what God does in act two of the story. So Exodus is this wonderful, there's this wonderful symmetry between Moses and how God delivers him from Pharaoh, sets him free, brings him through the water across the wilderness to Mount Sinai, reveals himself to, to Moses and commissions him. And then you have the story of Israel who God rescues from Pharaoh, who's trying to kill them, brings them through the water and across the wilderness into Sinai and commissions them to bear his name among the nations. So you have this beautiful symmetry between the life of Moses and the life of the nation. But what I had never noticed before is that the same verbs are used of what God does in part two and what the women do in part one. God is silent in part one. It's the women who are doing all the saving. <laughs> and, wow. and, and and it's just so, so brilliant how the narrator sets, up, sets that up up for us to find it. So they so when the daughter of Pharaoh finds Moses in the in the Nile River, she sees him. She hears his cry. She has compassion on him. And then later God sees the Israelites in their bondage. He hears their cries and he has compassion on them. It's just beautiful. Oh, that is so powerful. And that is uh uh and and we don't see it. You're right. We don't see it in in the English translation, and we don't actually hear it. Mm -hmm. they, and at least in my growing up years, you know, I uh, it was all about Moses being stuck in a basket until he was rescued. You didn't yep. know the other characters. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's so 
that's that's our history though isn't it it is and it's and it's striking too that pharaoh is never named we don't find out in the book of exodus which pharaoh this is but we have the names of the midwives Shifra and Pua, they're named and they're memorialized for all for all time. And and we don't have the name at first of Moses, of Moses or of his sister or of his mother. They're each anonymous in chapter two until until the daughter of Pharaoh names him. And what I what I think might be going on there is that the narrator is like, okay, this is dangerous business here. Let's not give away the secret of who's defying Pharaoh. Let's let them sort of fly under the radar by being nameless. And then the name that we get is, is when, when Moses is weaned and he's brought back to the daughter of Pharaoh, she decides to call him Moses, which means drawn out or one who draws out, which is what Moses is eventually going to do with the nation. He draws them out of Egypt. And and by naming him Moses, she is memorializing her audacity. Like she's she's not she's not in in her mind. His life starts the moment she finds him in the river, and so for all time, every time people say his name, they're remembering that she took a risk, that she put her own life and her own status in the royal family on the line by contradicting her father's policy and saying, "I'm saving this one." I'm supposed to throw him in the river, but I'm not going to. I'm going to raise him as my own. It's just amazing. I think, you know, the takeaway for me is that God is calling men and women to lean into uh, whatever we can do to facilitate and foster life in, in our communities, to resist injustice and to do it at cost to ourselves. Absolutely. It's so beautiful and so powerful. Carmen, I so love your attention to those details. And, and I know when, I, when I'm teaching to her also, just to, as you say, to talk about the women who saved Moses so that he could yes. become the savior of Israel. Yes. But he would never become that if the women hadn't, if these, these women hadn't saved exactly. him. So I'm titling, it's so powerful. I'm titling that section of the commentary, Delivering the Deliverer. Beautiful. I love it so much. It's really powerful. Well, and I have so appreciated us uh, chatting. Our time is coming to uh, to an end, and that uh, that yeah, I I'm I'm amazed at what you've been able to draw out of that story that uh, I've known for so long, uh, even back in. Um, Vacation Bible School when we sure. all wove our little baskets with Moses, you know. <laughs> yep. Um, how can how can we be alert, or what are ways mm. that we as women can be alert to these things that are right before our eyes as we yeah. read Scripture? I think one thing we can do is just slow down and use our imaginations. I have often been nervous about imagination because I don't want to distort the text. I don't want to be guilty of eisegesis, but I think, I think as I've sat with this story of Moses' childhood and asked all the hundreds of questions I have about it, why is Pharaoh's daughter bathing in the river? Does she not have a bath in her house? What, what is she hoping to accomplish? Is she going looking for babies? Does Pharaoh know about this? I mean, there's so many gaps in the story. And, and asking those questions, allowing yourself to ask those questions can help you see the details that are there that you might have missed. Here's another, here's another one that I noticed. Miriam, the sister of Moses, takes her stand 
by the, by the water to watch over this basket. It's the same word that's later used of Moses who takes his stand by the Nile um, waiting for Pharaoh to come down to the Nile so that he can confront him. And then and then after the people cross through the Red Sea, they take their stand and watch as God brings death to the Egyptian armies that were pursuing them. So there's almost a militant quality to, to what Miriam does as a young girl of probably six years old. Um, it, it's just amazing. So slow down, ask lots of questions. Um, I've, I'm releasing videos. I started a YouTube channel as part of uh, this pandemic, just trying to get through it. And because I was finding so much cool stuff about Exodus, but the commentary is years away from being released because it's going to take me a while to get through all 40 chapters. So if you want to kind of follow along with what I'm learning, uh, you can look for me on YouTube, Carmen Joy Imes. And it's the series is called Torah Tuesday. And they're little five minute, six minute videos where I say, okay, this week, here's what I found. And it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thank you. We will definitely want to take a look at that. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to Torah Tuesdays because I've watched some of those too and recommended them to people because it's so refreshing. I love those it's, little tidbits. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's been really fun to interact. It's it's a it's a great way to do public theology, and I, I feel like I'm interacting with people all over the world every week, which has been a real a real joy. Well, we're glad that you interacted with us in this <laughs> half hour. Thank you very much, Carmen Imes, up there in the Great White North. Uh, <laughs> Sister Canada. I'm happy to say that all of our snow is gone. It it was gone a month early this year. Normally we're still looking at piles of snow in in April up until up until graduation. We're waiting for that snow to go away, but this year it's all gone. So Oh, well good for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm gl I'm happy for that. And I'm especially happy that you joined us for a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Carmen. Thanks for having me.